Matthew, the 21st chapter. So today, of course, as Brother Tony mentioned, it's uh, Palm Sunday. This is a special Sunday out of the year that uh, Christians celebrate the beginning of Passion Week. Um, I've had an a older sister uh, last year. She said, boy, I wish they would hand out those palm leaves uh, so I could wave those. So many churches, as you may know, they hand out uh, palm leaves this Sunday. Uh, they wave them around as they sing hymns. The children weave them into crosses, and the adults will take those to uh, press them in their Bibles for the year or display them somewhere in the home and what I didn't know about that is they actually bring those back next year, they burn them up, and that becomes the ashes for uh, the beginning of Lent that's put on people's foreheads. I didn't know that, because historically the Church of God has not participated in such rituals, you know, kind of viewing those as implements of man-made religion. But while I largely agree with that view, you know, I don't want us to throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater this morning and discount this tremendous event that's taking place in the beginning of Jesus' so-called Passion Week. Um, so go, let's go ahead, let's read here. We're going to read the first 15 verses of chapter 21. It tells the entire story here of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and they were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, he shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went, and they did as Jesus commanded them, and brought an ass and the colt, and they put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And now a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them on the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed, crying, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God, and he cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, and ye have made it a den of thieves." And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, to, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they thought that was a wonderful thing. Is that what they say? No, it says they were sore displeased. 
displeased. They were sore displeased. So in the Bible here, this Passion Week, this beginning of Passion Week here, is a week jam-packed, as we already saw, with temple cleansing, healing, preaching, prophesying, preparing of the apostles, and then capped with Jesus' arrest, his sham trial, his humiliation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And we'll be talking about that next Sunday. So, the question comes up, why is Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem so important? To answer this, you know, I sometimes ask myself when I have one of these questions, I ask myself another question. What would be missing from the Bible, or what would be missing from my knowledge, or what would be missing from our Christian experience if this item was not in the Bible? In doing so, I came up with three items or reasons that I feel that the events celebrated on Palm Sunday here are of utmost importance and deserve our study this morning. Number one is that it establishes and demonstrates Christ's office as king. Number two is that it fulfills Scripture and it marks an important turning point in history. And number three, that it sets an earthly reference point for Christ's humiliation for our consideration. So first speaking of Christ's office as king, if you talk to uh, anybody in Reformed Christianity, they'll tell you that Christ holds three offices or three positions. You could say three jobs which he fulfills uh, to inform and govern our lives. You know, we would tell the uh, people that Christ's three positions are that of prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, there were generally three separate people that fulfilled those offices. So you would have somebody who would bring the word from God to you. That's the prophet. You can think of Samuel. You can think of Nathan. You can think of uh, Elijah, Elisha. They were bringing God's word to you. And then, of course, in the Old Testament, you couldn't go before God yourself to atone for your sins, but you had a priest and a high priest that would represent you before God. And then finally, to administrate the kingdom and to provide for polite society by promoting good behavior and suppressing evil behavior, you had a king. And of course, a good example of that would be King David. He fought for the people. He fought uh, for the safety and security of the people. He defeated the Philistines. But today, we have Jesus Christ that fulfills all of these roles. Because over time, of course, corruption grew and grew and grew in this system until God's anger became so great towards it that He said, I'm going to destroy it. And He sent Israel into exile and the revelation of the Messiah comes about. Then, as I said, with the advent of Christ, He fulfills these three roles for us of prophet, priest, and king. The first two are pretty easy to see. As a prophet, Christ preached authoritatively on how we should be saved and lived. We are to primarily live in an attitude that is obedient to His commandments with particular attention to loving God with all of our hearts and, of course, loving our neighbors as ourselves. If those two things are 
completed in your life, Jesus says that you will have fulfilled all of the law and all of the prophets. So we can clearly read in Christ's three-year ministry and the ministry of the apostles in the New Testament here, and we can see uh, we can see that demonstrated in the Word of God, His role as prophet, telling us uh, what we should do to come before the living God. As priest, we also can see that role clearly in the Word of God as well, as Jesus gave Himself as that perfect, sinless sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. He took the punishment that we deserved, and He ascended, it says, to the right hand of God, and now makes continual intercession for His children. However, this office of king is a little bit harder to see and to understand in the Bible. And even today, you have people that come up with kind of crazy ideas of no lordship salvation, where there's a belief out there that you can be saved, you can believe in Jesus Christ, but yet not be obedient to His kingship. I said in my notes here, yeah, try that in 16th century England. You'd probably had your head taken off pretty quick if you said, you know, I acknowledge the king or the queen, but I will not obey. You know, even today, this is not how civilized governments work. You not only acknowledge, but you also must obey. So I have, it, I have a hard time understanding how people believe that this is not how it works in the spiritual kingdom of God either. So religiously speaking, the kingly office, it's defined in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, as Christ subduing us to Himself. And the Bible says that if we are the children of God, that He will uh, discipline us, He will bring us into subjection. We will gladly serve Him. His commandments, they will uh, not be uh, onerous to us. So in ruling, and He also is king to us in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all of His and our enemies. The Bible says one of these days, all the enemies of Jesus Christ will be put down, will be made His footstool. And then, of course, the end will come. And here in the triumphal entry, though, of Jesus into Jerusalem, I think this is one of the best places in the Bible that we can see that kingship on full display with the multitude not just following Him around looking for another miracle or a handout as they often did, but the interview, so to speak, was completed once He had raised Lazarus. In John's account of this event, Jesus raises Lazarus and the multitudes actually see Him raise Lazarus. Of course, this isn't the first person that He's raised back to life, but the multitudes really start rushing him into Jerusalem to make him king at this point. They're convinced that he's prophet. They may not understand yet that he's priest, but they're ready to make him king. So having done this raising of Lazarus in the presence of the multitude, they are now convinced that Jesus was the long-awaited-for Messiah, and they embarked upon installing him now as king in the manner that other Israelite kings had been installed. They rode him into town with adoring crowds, celebrating, 
throwing their clothes down before him, so even the donkey's feet did not have to touch the bare ground. And you know, we think lightly of this today, because you know, we've got all kinds of clothes and everything, but these people were throwing down the only thing they had to wear. They had an, an inner cloak that they would wear and an outer cloak. And they were throwing the outer cloak down uh, so that Jesus could pass over that without touching the ground. Essentially, they were worshiping the ground that Jesus walked on, or the donkey walked on with him on it. And that was, of course, for the first and subsequently the last time. If it were not for this event, the question comes up, what would Jesus have been known for? In John chapter 3, Nicodemus claims that he knew that Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher sent from God. In John chapter 7, the people argue that he is a prophet or a Messiah, but they don't really feel that he's the Messiah because they didn't understand their prophecy. They said, well, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. This man comes from Galilee. Look it up. No prophet comes from Galilee. No Messiah comes from Galilee. But, <clears throat> and then in Matthew 16, Jesus asked His disciples, who do the people say that I am? Some said that He was John the Baptist. Some said Elijah or perhaps Jeremiah or some other prophet. Only Peter got it right. Peter says he's the Son of God. So up to that point, Jesus was not even viewed as a king. So even though his bloodline, as we read in the Gospels, runs all the way back through King David, just as the prophecy said it would, and in his early childhood, the wise men, interesting enough, they weren't Jews, they were Persians, came to King Herod and they said, where is this child born the king of the Jews? Even still, the Jewish people, the Israelites here, had no idea that he was king. However, you know, that event in his childhood, that had been 30 or 45 years ago, and two or three Herods ago, and given that people's lifespans you know, are probably about 30 to 45 at the time, most of those people had probably already passed away. That was old news. So Jesus' triumphal entry is very important in establishing and demonstrating His kingship role. He's not only our priest, He's not the prophet that told us how to be saved, He's our King. And if you are going to be saved, you must obey Him as King. So certainly, this, this uh, triumphal entry here, it elevated Him in the people's opinions, and it brought all eyes of Jerusalem, including, the Bible says, the chief priests and the Pharisees, to bear on Him during this week, as we'll see. The next point here is that the triumphal entry, this marking of Passion Week, it fulfills Scripture and it marks an important turning point in history. You know, we, we rightly look very closely at the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection, but here we see Jesus Christ paraded as He should be as King. 
changing history. Everything from this point will be different for mankind. So, as has been clearly identified or indicated in several of the Gospels, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, His mode of transportation, and even what the people were shouting were fulfillment of Scripture. You know, they were shouting, Hosanna! And last time I preached on a Palm Sunday, I uh, broke that word down a little bit. It's really just a transliteration of the original Hebrew, which means they just kind of spelled it out. They didn't try to translate it into anything. But it's translated in uh, Psalm 118 as, Save now! That's what they were shouting, Save now! Save now! If you think of it, a good way of putting this, a good picture of it, is Peter, you know, when he decided he was going to go out there and, and meet Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, he looked away from Jesus Christ and what did he say? Save me! Lord, save me! That, that's exactly what they were shouting, Hosanna, save now! But we see, you would think a Savior, he's riding in on a horse. A horse of war. But no, Jesus, just as Scripture predicted, He rode in on a slow, plodding donkey. And even a colt of a donkey, a baby donkey. This thing had never been ridden before. So Jesus did not come in as the pompous Greek and the Roman generals would have done on a horse of war. Essentially, that's just their calling card saying, surrender or die. Instead, He came in humbly riding on a young donkey that had never been ridden before, which was a miracle in itself. But even beyond that, He didn't even own this donkey or bring it with Him to fulfill the prophecy. Rather, he stops two miles east of Jerusalem on Mount Olivet, and he instructs two of his disciples where just to find that donkey and its colt, and what to tell the people that they were borrowing this from. Can you imagine that? Somebody said, I want your car today. The Lord has use of it. Do you think they would just, you'd just let them have it? I don't know. Maybe if it's Burr Gayhart, I probably would. <laughs> But I, I don't know, if, if Brother Chad came up and I didn't know him, I don't know if I'd let him use my car. But you know, here these people were, this is their livelihood. And the disciples say, you know, they say, what are you doing with the donkey? That's my livelihood there. Oh, the Lord has use. Oh, okay, okay. What a miracle. And the other thing, I, I thought of this as I was studying. If you remember the layout of the tabernacle, that door was on the east side. He always entered facing west. And here Jesus is, getting ready to go to His death. He's going to that altar of sacrifice where He will be sacrificed, and He's entering in to the west. And they say that they did that because all the heathens and all the pagan gods, you would face east when you entered in because you were worshiping the sun. You were worshiping mankind. You were worshiping those... False gods and idols. God said, no. Turn your back on the false stuff and the false religion. True religion is going in this way, away from all that. And this is the way, I, I hadn't seen this until now, but Jesus is going in. The same way that you would have approached 
God in the temple in the tabernacle. So he borrows this donkey, he's riding on it. Don't think, though, that it's too weird that Jesus is riding on a donkey. That's not unheard of in the ancient world. If a king was galloping on a horse, you knew war was coming. You better lock the gate before he got there. Or you better be prepared with terms of surrender when he got there. Because if you locked the gate and you resisted a king in the ancient world, everybody in that city was going to die. They were not kind. They were not polite. But if you saw a king coming on a donkey, it was a sign of peace. It was an envoy of peace. And here we have the king, the king of kings, the prince of peace, riding in peace into Jerusalem on this donkey. But the real blessing, it comes when you start to look back to that original prophecy in Zechariah, the, uh, the ninth chapter. I'm going to try to turn back here. I forgot to mark it, but hopefully I'll find it quickly. So it's actually, it's right before Malachi. But Zechariah, the ninth chapter. Now, Zechariah, it's kind of a, uh, it's a challenging book. Some people call it the revelation of the Old Testament. It has a lot of very challenging verses. When you're reading the commentators, you'll soon realize that they fall into a lot of different camps on how they look at the book of Zechariah. It was written during the time of the exile. Zechariah was a high priest. Um, and then, so if you read any commentators within the last hundred years, a lot of them are heavily influenced by uh, the premillennial dispensationalist views. So you're going to get a very literal interpretation of this is uh, to fulfill all these world events and things like that that happen. Now, I have some pastors that I, I love to listen to. They fall into that camp, but really when I hear their explanations of Zechariah, I just feel like it sucks the life out of the Scripture. And, and this is such a beautiful verse. I hate to see the, the life sucked out of it. Fortunately, you know, if you read back uh, a few hundred years to Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, John Gill, to a lesser extent even Adam Clark, I surprised, and John Calvin, they even lean towards a mixture of literal and spiritual application here. So let's just read it real quick. Just... Uh, Verses 9 through 12, and I'll find it here. So this is, this is what's being fulfilled. It says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, that you hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets. That, wait, I hope it doesn't. No, I'm in chapter 8. Wrong chapter. Rejoice greatly. That's where I was, I was like, where's the rejoicing at? Here it is, chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. 
As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit where there is no water. Turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope, even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. You know, it gets real boring if you say all sad is is, is a call, uh, calling the people back to Jerusalem. If you end there. But here we have that verse 9, it's referenced in the, in the New Testament, it's being fulfilled in the triumphal entry here. So it's saying, you know, here we, the church, are to be in a state of great rejoicing. Those people back then, they were in a state of great rejoicing because our King approaches. He doesn't look like what we would think He would look like. He's lowly. He's of no reputation. But He is just. And He has salvation for His people. The remaining portion of that Scripture there describes the tremendous effects that the Savior will have on His people. He will be a uniting force between the warring factions of Jews and the Gentiles. His kingdom shall extend far beyond just Israel to the very ends of the earth. And best of all, He will rescue the prisoners out of the waterless pit and send them back to the stronghold where they will be given double what they had lost. And that is just what the kingdom of God under the banner and kingship of Christ has done. Once loosed out of the bondage of man-made pharisaical rules, Christianity exploded well beyond the borders of Israel to the point that the apostles figured that no one in all of Asia Minor had not heard the gospel. Do you realize what a feat that was in two years? Just walking around, no trains, no cars no fancy modes of transportation. In two years, everybody in Asia Minor had heard the Gospel. If you don't believe me, you can read it for yourself in Acts 19.10. And then the enemies of God. Even the enemies of God and of the Gospel in Thessalonica, they claimed that the Christians were turning the world upside down. Thus was the power of the Gospel, and it still has that power today. Anyone who claims, or I'm sorry, comes to Christ truly repentant will not be turned away, and He will place you in the stronghold of the church where even the gates of hell, Jesus says, shall not prevail against you. And you'll receive that double portion too. Not only will your life on this earth be put right side up, I didn't say it'll be made easy. I didn't say that you still won't have struggles or you will never physically be put in a casket as you know, my grandma was here recently. No. But you will have the hope of eternity. You know, Jesus said that that second death will not touch those who experience that first resurrection. So they will not taste of the second death. That death that the devil, the false prophet, the beast, and all those that follow them are going to experience one day when they're cast into the lake of fire and sulfur. And to think that it all started with this triumphant ride into town. Where the whole countryside burst forth in praise for the Messiah. It's a marvel that the modern American church 
sees this story and is so little moved by it. Let a Christian rock band get up on stage, they'll be shouting, they'll be moved by that, they'll be moved to tears, but so much coldness for the rock of ages. And lastly here, it sets, the triumphal entry here, it sets an earthly reference for Christ's humiliation for our consideration. So we know that seeing Jesus paraded through Jerusalem as king has made an impact. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they have been moved to envy and it says indignation for the last time. They even tried to rebuke Jesus and his followers in Matthew and Luke's account. And they knew that they were going to kill him. They, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they were so mad they were even going to kill Lazarus. Poor Lazarus. Jesus, I mean, he, he had it rough. He already died and Jesus brought him back to life and here they're going to put him back to death. Get back in that grave. In fact, it's interesting. I'd never heard this before, but as I was studying, you know, we hear... <clears throat> We hear Jesus tell those old Pharisees and the chief priests, if these don't shout the Hosannas, those stones are going to cry out. Now, I've always thought, you know, literal stones, and perhaps that's what Jesus is talking about. But one commentator pointed out that as he's going along, there's graveyards there. And he could have been pointing at all those graveyards saying, you don't like it that I raise Lazarus? Wait until I raise all those people. If you that are alive are so nasty and so mean in your heart that you can't see that the living God is here, I'll raise up, I'll raise up a group that will give me praise. Hey, we're living right now. We should take this to heart. We should be giving God praise with our lives. But they knew, though, they were going to kill Him, and they began conspiring once again, if you, and you can read that in Matthew 26 and other places, which is going to bring Jesus to Calvary, which we'll talk about next week. But looking ahead a little bit, what was the final charge that they laid to Christ to convince Pilate to save or to crucify him? It was not that he was a teacher. They didn't say he is a prophet, crucify him. But instead in John 19:12, they said whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And of course Pilate's trying to reason with them because he knows that Christ is innocent. But they would have none of it. They said, we have no king. We have no king other than Caesar. How wicked a proclamation. And that sign, if you remember, that Pilate affixed at the top of Jesus' cross, what did it read? Jesus of Nazareth, prophet of the Jews. That's what he was known for. No. It read, King of the Jews. And you know what? <laughs> they didn't like that either. 
Oh, Pilate, Pilate, don't put that on there. That's written in all the languages of the world. Everybody's going to see it. Pilate looked at them and he could have had every one of them killed. They, they, and they knew it. And he said, what I've written, I've written. Pilate knew who was being crucified more than that religious sect that called themselves God's people. I wonder today in America's churches, how well do we know our Savior? I feel like sometimes I'm embarrassed because I feel like there's a lot of heathens out there. I feel like there's a lot of atheists out there that know and understand Jesus Christ in the Bible better than the church. My son and I, we listened to Jordan Peterson. I don't know if the man's a Christian or not. He used to be an avowed atheist, but this man has thought so thoroughly of what it means to be God's child that I mean, it's amazing just to listen to him because I'm like most, I'd say 98% of Christians have not thought about this subject even a tenth as much as this man has. And he didn't even claim to be a Christian. And here we see the same in the religious sect. Their king came, and they knew it not. Their house was left, Jesus said, desolate. But it was that kingship that his enemies used to destroy him. And lastly, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem it demonstrates just a little more clearly the incredible humiliation which Christ had to suffer to atone for our sins. I, I am of the belief that we take this all too lightly because we just can't fully understand, you know, when <clears throat> we, we try to use verses like Philippians 2.7. Paul says, in modern versions, it says that Christ emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, we've only lived in this dreadfully contaminated earth. Therefore, we don't understand the beauty, the purity, the wealth of heaven that Christ gave up. But let's think a minute on this picture. I don't think, we've, I don't think I've done this before. Think a minute on this picture. The contrast of Christ's entry into Jerusalem and now Him on the cross. You know, we can't understand what it's like to go from heaven to earth. I don't understand that, but I can picture Him going from being lauded as king on Sunday to filthy criminal on Friday. I can picture Him going from a crowd cheering, Hosanna, save us, to this mob that was shrieking, crucify Him. We can picture waving of the palm fronds, being whipped by that cat of nine tails that the Romans used to do, and every lash of that would just tear the flesh. He went from people laying their own coats down before Him to having soldiers cast lots for his only coat while he hung there naked and bleeding. We can see Jesus seated on that gentle donkey versus nailed to a cross. 
And this does not even take into account the horror of horrors. That suffering, the wrath of God for every one of our sins. I heard this said once. Maybe I've said it in Sunday school. I don't know if I've said it up here, but I remember hearing a message one time and the preacher was making the point of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you know what I realize is we like to think of Christ's righteousness coming upon us, clothing us, as the the Bible says, or clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can come into the presence of God. There's no self-righteousness. There's no work that you're going to do. You are not good enough to come into the presence of God without Jesus Christ. And we love that. That's a warm, fuzzy thought and feeling the righteousness of Christ being put on me. But we better not stop there if we want to get the true picture. This is what what happens in so many churches. I'm thankful for faithful pastors like Brother Tony that, that presents the full gospel. Because the other part of that is my dirty, filthy sins... All of us have sins. We probably we wouldn't want to stand up here and testify to them. We'll leave that to God, as it should be. There's many things that don't need to be said, but between you and God. But you know what? Those things that you would not say in a public place, that had to be put on Jesus. We got His righteousness, yes. But our sins had to be laid on Him, and He he had to bear the punishment of those sins, God turning His back on Him. And that there, even if you meditate on that thought, what a horror. You know, I've thought of that. You know, how could anybody think of hell for more than ten minutes and think that they still don't care? To fall into a pit where even God does not hear you, does does not answer your prayer, where there's no hope just falling for all of eternity or whatever terrible thing you can imagine. No hope to know that you fall off that precipice and there's no hope of your feet ever being on solid ground again. Terrible. And Jesus bore that for us all. So I think that we, can, we may not be able to picture what Jesus gave up in heaven, but we can see this contrast from the triumphal entry to worshiping Him rightly as King to the way that He was treated and crucified. And I'm concluding here. He did it all, though, out of tremendous love and care. That same love that He had shown to Lazarus, and indeed that same love He showed to a wayward Israel as He got to Jerusalem there, it says that He wept over it. There's just so much contrast in these scenes today that I think it should cause us to pause and to shudder at the thought of how Christ, the Son of God, was humiliated and what heavenly bliss that He gave up to come down here to make atonement for our sins. That's a, 
That's the reason He came. Make atonement for our sins. Restore us back to relationship with God for those who are willing. Those who will repent. Those who will listen to His prophecy. Those that will accept Him as their priest. And those that will follow and obey Him as their king. You know, I I can't think of any better way to express this thought in in ending and conclusion here. So, somebody singing, or we can just sing this song. It's a song. Hymn writer Philip Bliss. You can go ahead, actually, just turn, turn turn your books to page 65. I'll sing it if you want. I want you to read the words. I think it's so important. I'm sorry, it's a big hymn book. I think it's 65. Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows. Did I get their page right? Okay, I looked it up earlier. You can just, just follow along here. This is describing this event. And you know, if you have not come to know Christ as your Savior, come down here and pray. If you don't feel that that's something you can do, you better make it right sometime. And today's you know just as good of a time as any, but it goes like this. Read those words. Read them. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah! What a Savior! Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah! What a Savior! And when He comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew his song we'll sing. Hallelujah! What a Savior! God bless you. Thank the Lord for Jesus Christ, our King.